There was a day when I thought I had to be the best technically at my discipline. That is not the way to look at it. I think the technical is technical, and you have a set of skills that are table stakes that are much more the human skills. I believed in kind of creating something with your own skills that you can have shared ownership in and equity, which was a big thing that I figured out early. Oh my God, Rogers, Tellus and Bell are so big and so entrenched and so impossible to compete against that we shouldn't do this. No, I never really, we've never thought about the competitive landscape as being the problem. If you worry too much about the competition, you'll never enter anything. And all the innovation happens around that. Welcome to the Generation Hustle Podcast, a show that explores the world of business, entrepreneurship, and culture, all centered around the millennial. I'm your co-host, Sherison, alongside my good friend, Amin. And this week, we're back. We're exploring the world of telecom. Episode 62 is with Bryce Sheshuk, co-founder of Win Mobile, now known as Freedom Mobile, and currently the managing partner at Globalive Capital. Fellow Canadians understand that the telecom space is one of the most regulated and red-taped ruled industries to work within, making Win Mobile's story an incredible achievement. Bryce led the finance, HR, procurement, and supply chain functions of one of the largest new entrant pure play wireless service providers and helped raise approximately $2 billion in capital to acquire Spectrum and operate the Win Mobile network. Now, he manages a $100 million investment firm in Globalive, focusing on representative private equity, real estate, and venture investments. We sit down to talk to Bryce about his journey breaking into the Canadian telecom space with wind. He details the evolution of entrepreneurship through different eras and impactful skills necessary for anyone looking to achieve success. He also explains the importance of mentorship and how he's helping the next generation through Mindframe Connect. This was an incredibly informative episode that we hope you enjoy. Guys, thanks very much for having me. Look forward to it. Uh, hit me any way you want. Look forward to the discussion. We always love to start our podcast with kind of a, uh, kind of an elevator pitch or just a short summary, um, especially from our guests as well. So could you kind of tell us or walk us through kind of your career journey and um, any, any pinpoints or any experiences that you would pinpoint to kind of show us how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. Thanks very much. So again, I'm a little older probably than your average listener, 50 on the nose. So just to give a quick snapshot, Dalhousie University, 1994, commerce. There was, uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, as you guys know now, but back in that era, it was just not a thing that was popular. And it was also not even a thing that was really talked about much in university. I say to people, I did a business degree I have no recollection of the word entrepreneur being discussed during my entire four years at Dell. So kind of a, a different era. What that means is when I left, it meant, you know, what manifests is a more initial traditional career path. So for me, it was the chartered accountancy world in Toronto, kind of in financial services, kind of going to the big center and trying to make it, if you will, in the city. And thankfully, you know, within a short period of time, I realized that this, that path was not for me. And a great thing called Netscape was invented and the consumer internet, which then created an incredible explosion of entrepreneur. I would call it really the first explosive wave of entrepreneurship available to the masses. And I joined that wave, left the firm, uh, joined up with a few friends, started our first company, and then kind of went on a sequence of entrepreneurial endeavors with lots of setbacks, of course. And in 03, I met my current business partner, Tony Lacavera, a telecom entrepreneur in Canada. And he and I and a few others alongside our great team built what ultimately culminated in Win Mobile, uh, now called Freedom Mobile for those who are you know a little newer to the game. 
And we, uh, we had the big event of our careers six years ago when we sold wind to Shaw Cable Co. out west, as you guys know, for a very large exit, gave us the kind of the liquidity event of our, of our careers to date. And, you know, it's interesting when you have a liquidity event, a lot of things change. You have an operating business. It's large. It's your baby. It's gone. What do you do the next day? And there's a lot one can talk about for us. We stuck together as a group, which I'm very happy about. These are lifelong relationships, hard to make, and so on. And we built an investment platform with an acute focus on tech innovation and entrepreneurship, particularly in Canada. And I've spent the last six years building that alongside a lot of mentoring that would come alongside that to founders and the ecosystem. We've written some books around this and so on. And you know, I'm getting to a phase now where some of my time is spent thinking about impact. And, you know, I've got a, we can maybe hit that later, but a bunch of different areas that we're trying to, I, I use the term give back. The reality is it's very mutual learning, but um, all around positioning Canada better for where we see wealth generation, which is the innovation economy, which we have traditionally not been the best at as a country. Just to start, can we kind of go back to the point that you made earlier about entrepreneurship? Um, you mentioned that you've been through a lot of ventures. Um, some successes, some failures. Can you walk us through your mindset during this process? Um, and we ask this because we always, as young professionals ourselves, we want to understand how we can make the next career move or make the next best career move for ourselves to set ourselves up for the future. Um, and so for yourself, coming through a time when entrepreneurship wasn't something that was common, um, how did you kind of manage your mindset and your motivation? And what was your kind of outlook as you went through these processes? Yeah, great question. So here's how it went for me. And I'll, I'll give the very specific example. At the point of which I made the decision to leap, I was in Boston having transferred with PricewaterhouseCoopers, was working down there in a consulting role, actually having a very, very good run, uh, working with global financial institutions. The euro was coming out at that time. It was being formed. So there was a bunch of work being done. You know, a whole bunch of other Y2K, if you recall, that term was a thing and we were starting to work on that. So it was global travel, Japan, Europe, and so on, and really having a good time. I get the phone call from a buddy of mine who was in Toronto who said, look, we, we, we see an opportunity in this one area around Web1 that we think is underexploited and we think we should take advantage of it. And the group had a sequence of skill sets that we were all complementary. I had X, the, another guy had YZ and so on. And so I went, I, you know, I slept on it. I said, look, let me think about this. It's a big decision, right? And what I did, I, you know, it wasn't a one night decision. We went back and forth for a little while. We talked about the opportunity. We talked about what we had, what we knew about that market, a little bit of the principles that you hear a lot about now with startup that didn't really exist back then. We kind of explored that. And then I looked at my situation. I was 27 years old. I was young. I had no real burn rate built up yet of any note. I had um, you know, a little bit of savings that could allow me to take actually the pay cut, even at that age, and kind of go with that risk. And I knew that my downside was a CA that with a pretty robust job market and, you know, kind of a continued ability to have a backstop. So what I would say to you at that stage was young, low burn, wanted to do something entrepreneurial. It was really getting clear to me that I wanted to, I believed in kind of creating something with your own skills that you can have shared ownership in and equity, which was a big thing that I figured out early, important part of the mindset. 
and then you know a, a, a mental backstop, which not always people, which people don't always have, but I needed that, and I've realized over the years that that's been part of my mindset. So that's a you know that's a guy in what year was that? 1998, who's 27 years old. If I talk about now, I'd like to give you a slightly different perspective, okay? And not about me making a career move now. That's not the, the that's not relevant here. I have found I've spent a lot of time. I got back to my roots with the accounting profession, and I found myself in a mentor capacity with a lot of young finance professionals that are in the tech ecosystem. It is a lot different now, okay? First of all, the entrepreneurial economy is well understood. The puts and takes of actually going and starting something and taking that risk and so on are a lot more understood. There's a lot more support there. There's a lot more understanding of capital. There's a lot more understanding of risk and there's and so on. But what I have found and what I recommend to your audience is the best youngsters are seeking out mentorship from professionals that have maybe gone through the journey in, in, their, in a way that it has some comparability and that they can bounce ideas off of. And it's not one mentor. It's a, it's a personal board of directors. So right now, I am probably in an ad hoc way mentoring, I'm going to say, five people between the ages of 25 and 40 that are on a finance journey, okay, to pick one function. And it's amazing the diversity within those five of the different ways their careers are moving and the different opportunities and so on. And they are so thoughtful about when they check in about exactly what it is they're thinking about the opportunities that are being presented and how they should, you know, how can I help their decision criteria to then allow them to go off and explore it a little bit more, talk to some other people and make better decisions. So in my world, it is, you know, it is a different era in terms of your ability to do stuff like that in terms of receptivity of people to want to mentor and so on. The last thing that I'll say is that there, in my world, it wasn't that planned. Okay. So I didn't sit when I was 23, 24, graduating from university and map out 25 years to hit the age of 50 that would do this, 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 and this. No, for me, it was much more around what is the opportunity set? Who are my, where am I and what am I interested in? And who am I meeting that I can work with and that I'm inspired by? And those things all together seem to naturally work to a degree with how one is evolving. I think your networks evolve. I think your skills evolve and you're, it's, it's recognized as you're going. So there is a little bit, there's a little bit of a mix of some serendipity and creating your own opportunities. But literally, I couldn't, I didn't write this down by any means. Absolutely. That, that was a great, that was a great kind of breakdown. And you answered my next question. I was going to understand if how that has changed over time, especially from um, your era to this era now, especially with your mentorship. Um, yeah. But on that note, kind of, have you noticed any transferable skills or anything that's stuck out that's been consistent between all these years um, that's been consistently working for uh, entrepreneurs or people kind of looking to achieve the same things that you have or kind of in that kind of field? Uh, whether that's the people that you're mentoring or any of your business partners, like, is there that skill or one or two that you would say is very important to have or hone? Yeah, look, it's, it's a very important question. I do have a very specific thought on that. There was a day when I thought I had to be the best technically at my discipline. Okay. Best coder. If I was a coder, best finance guy, I could just nail that account, whatever it was. 
what I have realized, and I've actually realized it partly learning from my mentees, is that that, w- that is not the way to look at it. So in fact, technical skills are table stakes. What is much more important is all the other skills around it. And I'll give you a few examples. Okay, again, I exist in the entrepreneurial world, but these are, these are kind of broadly what used to be called soft skills. In reality, I actually call them hard skills. I think the technical is technical, and you have a set of skills that are table stakes that are much more the human skills. And I'll give you an example. In the founder competency world, we talk about an, uh, uh, one, competence, one core competency being strategic storyteller. Okay. Now, just break that down for a second. Storyteller, that means a bit of a pitch, a bit of a sale, a bit of an ability to weave a narrative that brings people along with you, and, and so on and so forth. And if you think about your life and your career, you are constantly selling, you're constantly pitching, even if it's, if it's subconscious, you're constantly bringing people along in a narrative that you want to convince them or bring them along with you, and so on. And so that type of a skill, that the honing of skills like that, the conscious ability to get out of your day-to-day comfort zone of I want to be a better accountant to say, how do I become a better storyteller? What is that actually, how do I translate that into actions that make me better? Another example of a founder competency, frugal urgency. So a hustle alongside a frugality when you think about the spend related to that hustle. How do I get better at that? Another example, iterative product builder. So the act of you don't set something in stone and it never changes. The act of changing continuously and learning from what the market is telling you. You know, networking and the list would go on and on and on. So for me, it's the act of seeking out ways of getting out of the comfort zone. If you don't like networking, start ne- go to some networking events and force yourself to approach a few people and have those first initial conversations and watch the magic that happens. And that's, that's really what I encourage uh, people in, you know, that I mentor to focus on. For sure. It kind of sounds like, just a paraphrase, it kind of sounds like you're, you're saying to always face the discomfort. Would you kind of say that's your philosophy or how always. you're kind of honing it? Yeah. Look for it. Let's go beyond facing it. Look for it. Seek it out. You'll, when we talk about some of the other uh, concepts over the course of this around anti-fragility and so on, actually seek out what makes you uncomfortable it will make you stronger better faster and so on and you know then the the extension of that is finding those skills that you that are useful to you that you're not great at and then applying that philosophy mm-hmm. yeah i think that's powerful cuz uh, considering i i can even give an example of that recently where you know i'm starting to move into like the consultancy space where you know i'm helping startups and stuff like that and uh, I, I do have the hard skills per se to kind of provide, but that's not unique in that sense where I'm really finding I need to improve is that storytelling, developing that trust, enabling that conversation uh, in order to have that everlasting relationship with that uh, client and an individual. And so like to your point, it's, uh, it's a point of discomfort and many individuals in finance don't really get the opportunity to usually storytell. It's more so you know, tell me what the financials look like, you know, build a narrative around that. But what is the other context beyond the scope of say, just the financials where, you know, may impact like other things. And so I think, uh, hopefully, as we develop new professionals, we start kind of relaying these kind of things that you're mentioning. um, And as a professional seeking discomfort, um, which really brings me to my kind of next question here, which is around, you know, 
you guys, you key members, uh, bringing wind mobile to Canada, which is obviously a huge undertaking when we're going against, you know, the th- three big providers. So could you kind of tell us why you believed in kind of pursuing this venture? And, you know, uh, most inv- investors and in, uh, entrepreneurs would think originally this would be insane to do. Yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's, you know, I try to cast myself back to that era to, to put context to it. And here's what I would say again, there, this was not this, oh my God, we had this plan from day one and this is just perfectly falling into place. Of course it didn't go that way. And quite frankly, when you go back there with the brain and cast it back to what happened, here's how I would say it. Number one is it was a bit of a progression. So, you know, you, I say to people, you don't graduate from high school and start a wireless company the next day. You need to have built a foundational base that allows you to go to the next level. What does that mean for us? What it meant for us is we had already built that an, uh, what they call an alternative telecom company in Canada that was a mid-sized company at some level of note in the consumer and business world in Canadian telecom. Okay, so we already had a platform. One, number two is we had scaled that as a management team to a certain level that gave us a little bit of credibility. Number three, we Canada from a regulatory perspective for telecom, first of all, is a complete and utter nightmare. Let me start there. But mm-hmm. it actually played to a benefit to us because to be to be able to invest in wireless in that era, you had to have a Canadian partner. That controlled the venture. Myself, Tony, Simon, you know, the other players were Canadian. So we actually also were a conduit for foreign capital to come into the market. Okay. So take all of that. And now let's go to the reality. You know, late 07, these rules come out that are, okay, uh, we're going to set aside some spectrum and put a few other policy changes out to allow competitors to come into the market. When that rule first came out, I remember Tony Simon and I were like, oh, that's interesting. Let's talk about that a little bit more. We were pretty happy with where we were with our existing telecom business. And we started talking about it. And then I use the term, a vibration started amongst us, predominantly driven by Tony, who is the kind of the bigger thinking CEO type in our relationship. And he was getting agitated. And he has this personality trait of positive agitation when an opportunity arises. And I saw it. And then we got kind of to the end of 07, over the holidays of 07, and we're like, are we going to do this? And, you know, we'd started softly talking to people and getting the network moving and so on. And then we wrote the business plan, and then we took a run at raising money. And what ended up happening is through complete luck with crazy blitz-style networking, just before we were supposed to meet a deadline that we almost missed. We met this gentleman in Egypt. We raised you know, many, many hundreds of millions of dollars. It allowed us to put a deposit down and then we entered the auction and the rest is kind of history. So my point really in that narrative is it wasn't this master plan. It was a sequence of things that happened that we realized we had something that we could contribute to and we could grow, we could build on with our existing stuff. And then we tested the market and we got lucky at the end with a fundraising of someone who wanted to enter this market alongside of us and and kind of take the run. Mm -hmm. And so, but I will tell you that I was never 
of a mindset that said, oh my God, Rogers, Tellus, and Bell are so big and so entrenched and so impossible to compete against that we shouldn't do this. No, I never really, we've never thought about the competitive landscape as being the problem. It's much more around our ability to compete that is far more interesting to us. And I apply that a lot in startup land. It's like really, if, if you worry too much about the competition, you'll never enter anything. And all the innovation happens around that. So I would say that's kind of how wind happened for us. Right. And kind of looking into that, uh, you obviously are showing uh, this resiliency to making sure, you know, we as consumers get access to wind and make sure on your end that it's a success. So uh, what strategies were or did you guys employ to make sure, you know, that we sustain the growth of that business uh, given the current market conditions and what was happening during that era of time? Yeah, so for us, number one was having the partner that could go the financial distance that had an had a, a similar entrepreneurial mindset to ourselves. And I will tell you that if you look at that environment, you'll remember the name possibly Mobilicity, and you might yeah. re- remember the name Public Mobile, which got by tel- bought by Telus. Okay, yeah. So in that era, there's the three of us competing, and um, you know, Public Mobile and Mobilicity had what I would call financial classic financial shareholders, private equity. They need a return. They have a formula. We had a shareholder that was an entrepreneur from Egypt who built telecom businesses in a whole bunch of different countries that were very interesting around the world. He had a completely different style and mindset. He played a long game. He understood a 20, 30, 40 year time horizon and the value that can be created if you can beat an oligopoly over that period of time. And and what would have happened if we didn't have that is we would have been stopped at a point when the financial results were down and the battle was at its toughest. And we would have probably had to end up figuring out a sale earlier than we should have. And it would have been a whole bunch of ugliness and repair, like Mobilicity filed for bankruptcy, public mobile sold to tell us they were not the outcomes. In fact, even our outcome within that context wasn't the one we wanted, but it was a lot different than the others. And that I would say was a core necessary characteristic for wind to have gone the distance that it did and all else is important but one level down from having the right financial and strategic partner for an endeavor of this nature yeah and i think you mentioned such an important thing there which is finding the right strategic partner uh, especially when it comes to financing uh, we live in a world today where you know obviously you're very familiar with the entrepreneurship space and tech space where a lot of these uh, companies are really looking to get that next growth phase in and so they're looking to raise around but a lot of them don't really explore the option of you know is this the right actual venture firm for us to get capital from and help us kind of strategically grow they just see it as more of an investment let's just grow, but they might have a different investment narrative at the end of the day. So uh, what would your advice be for entrepreneurs and or, you know, other businesses seeking out venture capital or maybe debt um, and kind of the approach you would take as a finance professional and making sure that uh, strategic relationship exists and it's most optimal for what you're trying to build? So again, great question. Now, I do a presentation every cohort for the Founder Institute last, they do a 13-week program for mm. kind of very new thinker, of new entrepreneurs that are thinking about starting a company. The last, uh, the last week, so the 13th week, 
is always equity and fundraising. And I've been doing that presentation all the way through. So it's a very, it's a very topical question for me. And it's changed over time as this capital landscape has evolved. Here's what I would say. Let's talk, let's talk at a, at a, at a macro level. Number one is you do not want to fall into Silicon Valley's narrative. Okay. The narrative is built to help the VC, not the entrepreneur. You are a number in a portfolio of which they have a portfolio construction. They have a concept of what what is called a power law return and a way of making money for themselves on the back of the entrepreneur. You are responsible as a founder to understand that. You have to walk in the VC shoes and understand the narrative. Once you have done that, it opens your eyes to a lot of different things. And I would go in two or three directions. One is, do you even need institutional equity capital? There is a concept of bootstrapping, which means you Mm -hmm. keep more ownership, but you'll grow slower and you could have a far happier life with with as good a wealth outcome with just a different growth trajectory. So understand bootstrap versus raising capital. Once you've made the decision that you are going to raise capital, the landscape is the best it's ever been at all stages of the capital stack right now. And so that's good for you as a founder. You have choices. You have um, a friendlier environment. Valuations are more favorable. Dilution is less and so on. And what I, w- what I say to people is you need to understand, you need to treat capital raising as a, as a true competency and skill. You need to spend adequate time preparing for it. Preparation is much more important than execution. Um, while preparing, you need to think about the trades of, let's pick one example. Could you do a token in this Web3 world to raise money for mm-hmm. the nature of your startup? Or does straight equity make sense? Should you do royalty financing with Clear Co? Or uh, uh, you know other players that compete with them if you have a little bit of monthly recurring revenue? You know, pipe is an example. There's a lot of others. Or should you do more classic equity? If you do equity, do you go to an angel who's strategic, or do you look for a seed firm? Or do you? So you can see where I'm going with this. There is a ton of options here. There's a ton of optionality. And what I say is, you don't leap at the guy who gives you the name solely and a big valuation that might even be fake with a bunch of other terms. No, it's a far more nuanced conversation that requires you to be comfortable with the other side of the table and you to have gone through in a systematic way the options that are available to you and so on. This is math and science much more than art in the current environment. Yeah, uh, and maybe just a side question here. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on the whole kind of VC environment today as a whole? Because uh, uh, coming from the tech space as well, I think founders get, uh, you know, stuck into the idea of just, you know, continually raising the valuation as high as possible. Uh, and then they forget about different principles that kind of go fundamentally to develop a business. Um, so can you, can you kind of maybe also shed some light on um, some of the goods and the bads that relate to VC? You obviously mentioned, obviously, they have their own kind of uh, agenda to achieve with their LPs and stuff like that. But uh, as a founder, what should I understand before you know going into that conversation? Yeah. So as a founder, we'll, we'll, we'll assume that someone understands the other side of it based on some of the comments we've had in their own work. There are founders and deals that make a whole bunch of sense for venture financing. Okay. Typically, they're in sectors that are forward-looking and quite, uh, I'll use the term sexy. I hope that's okay. 
Yeah. Um, number two is they have a growth trajectory that meets what is required in the VC landscape. Uh, sometimes they're on trend for future looking uh, op- innovation opportunities. So clean tech would be an example. SaaS still has its day. AI, self-driving and autonomous. Um, you know, I, the list is obviously very lengthy. Um, so, uh, be, you know, that's a lot different, obviously, than I'm going to create a new restaurant physical that I might ultimately try to franchise. Those are just totally different models. So being right. on, on, on that level of trend and actually super importantly, being a founder who understands the treadmill they're walking on when they enter the VC world, understands their role in a VC's portfolio and understands the downside if the business doesn't perform as planned. Okay. And it's that downside and how one thinks about future management of that, in my opinion, that is the maker or breaker and the likelihood and probability of downside. And so if you do this, if you do, if you kind of evaluate your business, I'm a software company in a market that is doing this and I've been doing this for a couple of years and I've started to get some traction and I start mapping out what are my realistic growth assumptions? I add capital. What does that look like? What happens if I miss? And you start putting a narrative together. And do I want this person around the table that's going to help me, but also going to require certain things? And how does that all work for me as a human? And if that whole equation works, then I would suggest one goes and they explores the market and they look at those shareholders and they, 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 they approach it with a skeptical but rational eye. And they decide on that, the puts and takes of taking that capital. They think about what they do if they miss and they have a need to deal with that capital in a different way. And then away you go. But that narrative is a hell of a lot more thoughtful than I started this company. I got a little bit of traction quickly. And now I just got to go to Silicon Valley. I got to go to the Valley. I got to go to the Valley. Right. And I have found that in some of the... The, the, the narrative right now for the young founders that haven't really been through the, the pain, if I could summarize, yeah. there is this tendency to always gravitate to that single narrative. And yeah. in no situation that I've ever been part of in my life, is there a single narrative? And it behooves everyone to understand the multivariate narratives of how you can raise capital for your business or not. That's how I'd say it. Yeah, and I think uh, to your point, I think that it's a very singular, singular or narrow focus that a lot of younger entrepreneurs have, which ultimately doesn't allow them to assess the risk and rewards of other options that exist. And you, I, I think throughout this conversation, we've really summarized this idea of risk through career, through you know you going out and building wind and even VC. So, uh, what what is your philosophy around risk and maybe managing risk? Uh, based on how kind of you've gone through your career and maybe it's an open-ended question, obviously, like what are your thoughts on how entrepreneurs should assess risk and make those decisions? So how I, how I think about it or how I, I guess I've probably the better way to say it is how I've acted on it and think about it is there are stages in life and career where you can put more chips in the table and take that bigger set of risks on singular uh, deal deals or singular places where you spend your time. It's probably a better way to say it. Time is really the biggest chip you're putting in as we know. Right. Um, and you push those chips in and then over time 
you need to look at ways of pulling some chips off the table and spreading it out more and more as one gets older and older to ultimately have you know a, a situation of comfort and stability and wealth and so on okay so you know if you unpack that a little bit you know back to my example so you know i'm in university middle class kid i get my first job i got no i've got no you know, all your chips are in on that first job to start building your experience that's you know let's call it risk one for me it was an easy one i went to an accounting firm right whatever i think if you're going to a startup there's some i've had lots of chats with youngsters about making the move to startup versus sticking around the corporate career and there's some interesting you know discussions one can have there but let's call that phase 1 phase 2 for me was hopping out and taking that startup risk putting all of my chips in on a single company getting equity in that company and taking a run for it lot you almost evaluate that as an investor in that example okay um and then what i would say to you is over time every time we had liquidity opportunity every time we had maybe an exit on an angel investment we did or whatever i would always start siphoning a little bit of that into what i call the safety bucket and as i've gotten older and older a little more of that every time and now that safety bucket is a real bucket that kind of works for the number now how does that relate to current era so the thing that has changed the most in entrepreneurial world land is if you're a founder uh, in the old days you start a company they want you to be all in on that company, all in with your time on that company, and all in with your wealth on that company. Okay. That has now been recognized as actually not the best situation for entrepreneurs. Because if you have a flame out, you could be 45 years old and find, find yourself literally restarting. And that is very dangerous. So, what has the market done to adapt? Two things. Number one is the notion of secondaries. Right. So as you build your company and you get later and later, and this applies to employees too, is they allow you to take some chips off the table at each round. Okay. So you can sell a little bit of your interest to buy your house, sell a little bit to put some money into the retirement fund. That's the secondaries. We could talk about that more, but I think, you know, it's a pretty understood concept. The second thing that I've noticed, and I, this has been really interesting to me, is people accepting the side hustle. Okay. So in my day, if I was at Cooper's and Pricewaterhouse Cooper's and I went to them and I said, Hey guys, I'm going to start a little investment vehicle on the side. I'm going to go to 10 of my friends and raise 50 grand each. I'm going to have a $500,000 pool of money and I'm going to invest 25 grand in, in whatever number of companies that is 20 companies. They would laugh me. They'd probably fire me. Actually, the world has changed. I have just, we have just cut a check recently as Global Live to a group called Union in Toronto. Union, each one of the partners are full-time employees, one of Live Nation, one of League, and one is the co-founder of Ada. And so the ability to do something else in a, in a explicit manner and use that, at, you know, use the skills that you've built to kind of do that alongside what your primary is, is a super interesting concept to me. Okay. And I could, we could get into a lot of other things that also help de-risk, you know, the creator economy with Substack and with Web3 and some of these principles that'll empower the entrepreneur. What Shopify has done 
obviously for e-commerce and for small e-commerce shops to to build. What AngelList has done for investing, you could pick platform after platform that really allow people to express their creativity and do something slightly different from solely the primary. So that's that's how I think about it. The big swings, the big risks are taken early. As one ages, they start to look at taking some chips off the table and they start looking at potentially diversifying some of their income. That's how I think about it. Absolutely. That was an incredibly detailed response. And I want to stay on the topic of that kind of on risk reward ratio, but just with a different perspective. Um, so from a personal standpoint, obviously, we need to understand how we can manage our comfort level as we're kind of progressing on those stages. But from a business standpoint, and we'd be remiss not to mention kind of the current climate of the last couple of years uh, with the pandemic, has that changed your thinking around entrepreneurship at all um, in terms of managing risk um, and in terms of kind of just progressing towards these goals um, just because of kind of restrictions and regulations and just how it shifted a lot of our thinking. Can you kind of speak to kind of the current climate and how does it, if in any way at all, has that changed your view on entrepreneurship? You know what? It. I'll tell you what it's done. It's caused me to sharpen my understanding of resiliency as it relates to entrepreneurship. Okay. And I want to, I want to unpack that for you guys. So prior to the pandemic, resiliency and anti-fragility to me was this, just this kind of concept that existed. I never really looked deep into it. And quite frankly, I think that people would have looked at me and my partners and said, you guys seem pretty damn resilient. You built this company, you did this, you did this and so on. And they would ask me questions like, well, how did you do it? And, you know, when you were in the heat of battle, how did you do it? And I would answer things like, well, you know, I never slept. I hustled as hard as I could. I woke up in the morning and we're in a lawsuit and our license has been pulled by the regulator. And I, I understood the tasks of the day and of the month. And I just put one foot in front of the other and I got them done. And then you know, I knew that the big wind with the big gravitational pull, the need, the, the government needed to have a wireless company with a consumer presence to, to be that challenger and so on. And I could create a narrative. It was an unsophisticated narrative. Pandemic hits. Uh, I start getting much more active in mentoring the ecosystem around thinking about crisis. We've all, every business I've been in has been continuously in crisis. And I've been through dot-com one, the credit crisis, and now the pandemic. So here's, here's what I would say to you. The, there, there are probably two or three strings I would pull on. One is I've gotten, a, and you're going to ask me, I know, about my book, about the book choice. And quite frankly, I'll give you the, the preview. It's around these concepts of resiliency and anti-fragility. Okay. And what is it? What does that mean? Anti-fragility means that when a crisis hits, you run to it, you seek opportunity, and you actually grow stronger. The difference between that and resiliency is that resiliency is you get back to where you were before. With anti-fragility is you actually get stronger. And how that manifests, what I have seen is as follows. The best entrepreneurs and creators looked at that pandemic and they said a thousand things are going to change in society. And if I'm stuck on something that is going to detract in change, I'm going to go find something that's going to benefit from that change. And I actually took maybe the kernel of what I had. Some just straight up benefited, right? Like they're like Shopify, right? Let's pick an example. You, you pull forward e-commerce by a decade in, in weeks and that's going to benefit, but not most didn't. And so the entrepreneurs that really flourished in the pandemic is they took the kernel they had or what they knew 
And they just went right for it faster than everyone else to say, guess what? We're working remote. That means that we now need gift baskets going to everyone's house in a very quick and efficient manner to do socials for employees. And they jumped on them. You know, they went and they adapted very quickly. My narrative is, is that that is the, the understanding that and actually systematizing some of the thinking around that to me is super critical. Okay. So that would be point one. The second point that I would make, and this actually plays on a point that I've been thinking about for years, is we've gotten into a narrative about the, again, I'll use the word, the sexiness of being a founder and entrepreneur. And there is good and bad in that. We, of course, want more entrepreneurs. I'm the, I'm the poster child to talk to the world that I think Canada benefits from more entrepreneurship, less oligopoly, all that stuff. But when you get below the surface, the entrepreneurial narrative can be a little dangerous at times. And I'll give you the, uh, the example that I use. We see lots of what I would almost call it as fake startups. They get some government funding. There's tons of grants out there and so on. And they never really get the traction to either bootstrap themselves to a real business that cash flows and does X, Y, and Z, or that gets on that growth trajectory and, bore, and, and uses external capital. And they're kind of sitting in this middle ground. And years and years go by, and they've never really advanced. They're never really creating wealth, and they're burning time in their lives that are important years to build that foundation. And so I've thought much more about that narrative when I look at the pandemic and just it's got everyone reflecting a lot more on things. And what I would say is, is that we need to have periods of self-reflection about whether one's entrepreneurial endeavors are really making sense. And I don't think we do that enough. I've had a lot of chats with that with guys like Sunil Sharma at Techstars and Founder Institute. We think that there is a failure narrative that we need to bring forward that is not a bad narrative. It's just an educational narrative. So those would be two examples. I do have an, a third, but I'll hold that till we talk about the book because I want to I want to hit a point in there. We go back and forth with a lot of founders and understanding how they're navigating these times and just understanding what they put in place uh, to kind of succeed in that. And so what I wanted to ask is kind of around the idea of uh, worst case scenarios, right? So how much or how little should they be prepared for that in the sense that obviously we're trying to manage risk and reward and um, kind of going forward with our businesses and taking risks so that we can set ourselves up for success. But then things like this happen and it's like, we have this, or I'd say we as in society has this way of looking at certain businesses and saying, hey, you weren't prepared then, right? You just weren't prepared for this. And so how do we manage that kind of that, that balancing act of, yes, we want to move forward and try new things, but also at the same time, we need to be prepared for anything that can happen. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's not, there's no formula. Okay. Right. So I have examples in the pandemic of a portfolio company that lost 95% of its revenue in a day, in a day. Wow. And luckily, so the lucky side of the narrative is they had just done their series A or B uh, three weeks before the pandemic. So they had a whole bunch of cash on their balance sheet. So they were able to recalibrate their business in a little bit more of a thoughtful manner than in a panicked manner. Okay, so take that example as one as one. But that's not that's not a systematic answer. We have examples of all these. You can't prepare perfectly for stuff like that. So what are the principles that one wants to talk through? Okay, here's here's an example of one. So the runway and how much cash do you have and how strong is your balance sheet? 
it's an interesting narrative in a high growth ecosystem because the general tendency is to burn, raise, burn, raise, burn, raise. Okay, so let's say that we are in the burn, raise, burn, raise environment. Okay, and we're we're still that that will still make sense in companies that have that growth narrative. Well, when you time your raises is very important. Okay, so the 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 narrative is somewhere between 12 and let's call it 30 months of runway that you raise per every time you do a round, which then gives you enough time to meet the next set of milestones to really accrete value and do that all over again. And someday right. you'll get to some level of sustainability off into the future. So what I would say to people is in that narrative, raise for a longer runway generally as a, as a company. Number two, raise a little earlier than you often would. So rather than having six months of runway left, the way capital velocity is working right now, raise with nine months of runway. Okay. Right. That way you have margin for error if something really does go wrong. Okay. So that would be, let's call it runway and fundraising and balance sheet. Let's talk about another thing. One thing we found in the pandemic is we had to take entrepreneurs back to first principles. Okay. All of us who've started a business uh, remember that what are the tropes? You don't want to be a solution seeking a problem. You want to be, you want to find the problem and build for your customer's need. Correct. Right. Well, you forget that over time, right? You've, you've kind of done it. You're, you're building for customer. You, you increment your product and blah, blah, blah. What we said to people is no, throw that out the door, get rid of all superfluous stuff and focus acutely on reconnecting with your customers and understanding what their problems are in this volatile world of COVID and how you need to adapt your prop, your product therein. So my point to that is to say, remembering first principles of customer development and discovery should always be in your business because your customer will always be telling you where they need to go and what their problems are as it relates to your situation. And we lose that as we age a business. And so the act of the discipline of keeping customer development and discovery going, important. You know, and so I'll pick those two because you, you could go on forever. But what we found going through the pandemic is there was this narrative around fundraising and runway, customer development, discovery, um, remote work and how you engage your workforce and talent and how you start winning the talent war. And this was before the current era, which has even gotten nuttier. And then, and then the other big theme we had was maximizing the use of government support. So those were the four we used in the pandemic. But I can tell you, I talked to a guy in a book I wrote around crisis, and he talked about September 11th. And no, a lot of people don't think about September 11th as being that impactful. It was fast. It kind of hit the travel industry and a few other things. And then we kind of bounced back and got moving again. Well, in fact, there were some businesses that got crushed in September 11th, particularly those selling to the insurance industry, right? Because insurance just stopped buying anything. They didn't know what they were going to have to pay out. And so he had a narrative around that. And so I do say to you that some of these first principles around um, your business actually work in any type of crisis because they make you think a little differently from a resiliency and an organizational resiliency perspective. I'll stop there because it could go th that we could burn three podcasts on that. Yeah, no, no, I think that's powerful. And, uh, you know, thinking about all those kind of mechanisms and understanding and going back to core principles is maybe why, you know, we see successful companies in other ecosystems. Like, for example, like those four points you made, I can 
automatically think of Shopify and them applying it in different totally. scenarios and situations. And so, you know, we see successful companies, but they always kind of focus on those core things. And that's why we see such growth and scale. Um, one of the things I wanted to touch on with is um, the idea of, you know, regret and decision making around that, because uh, oftentimes entrepreneurs are, you know, making those tough decisions. Um, so in your career and or maybe entrepreneurs you're dealt with, um, how have you kind of went about, you know, decision making and maybe feeling regret? And how did you kind of overcome that uh, as an individual? Okay. Yeah. The regret decision-making. So I'm going to go in a few different directions here. Um, I love the Obama. There's an Obama quote that I use for decision-making. And in fact, I was talking to someone about this yesterday, the field we would call it is decision-making under uncertainty, right? And when we're, when we're, when we're making a decision with hundred percent certainty, good for you. Like that never happens. Okay. But good for you. So the, Obama said it well. He said, you know, I have to make these weighty decisions as a president. I never have all the information. They're always the hardest decisions because of the the chair that I occupy. And so for me, the best decision was made with 70% certainty. And I like that. Okay. I said, look, if you can get to 70% certainty and whatever your criteria are and whatever decision you're trying to make, that is a win. And quite frankly, it's a good thing to aspire to. Can you try to create the conditions around it quickly? Always speed is important, we know, that allow you to make a decision that's not 50-50, that's not a coin toss. So do, do what you can from a criteria, a, you know, a, a research, a socialization, a mentorship, whatever it is, to get to 70% if you can. So that's generally how I talk about making decisions. And actually, I should be careful. I said quick. There are decisions that should be made quickly, but there are actually times when pausing and letting a situation play out and watching the optionality can benefit too. That's a, a obviously a lengthy discussion. A lot of research gone into that. Worth a, worth a look for those interested. Now, regret. I would say to you that what I don't I, I won't use the term regret, but how I think about it is there is value to post morteming decision-making that resulted in a wrong decision to determine if the mechanisms to make that decision were flawed. Okay. And so uh, easy example for me is I have all these rules around investing. And then I get a call from a trusted friend who says, Hey, you should buy this stock. It's a, like a hot tip. And then I go buy it. I throw all my rules out the window and I take a zero on that stock. That's an easy example of you postmortem that and you're like, you broke your rules. You, you had a framework and you broke it. And so that's a kind of a silly, easy example of going back and actually revisiting the hard, you know, things that didn't work that make you feel like crap and really trying to understand what was it. And I'll tell you, 75% of the time I was comfortable with the decision, even though it was wrong because we used the best that we had at the time. Or look, one, another big example is missed deals. Right, I've, I a deal came by and I didn't invest in it, and it ends up being a unicorn. That's happened multiple times. And when you go back and you say, "Why did I not do that?" and you start to understand at the time your context and so on, um, and every once in a while you're like, "You know what? I I I actually missed, and I should have done that." But probably most of the time we looked at it thoroughly and we had the logic for it, and we didn't do it. So my point is, is really put frameworks around the evaluation of incorrect decision-making to make yourself better the next time. 
And generally, if I could give you a life philosophy of mine, that's how I think. I like to have a framework. I like to be structured and systematized, but also allow a little bit of serendipity and adventure. Yeah. And I think uh, for entrepreneurs, I think they need to also develop that psychology into making sure that, you know, decisions are going to go wrong in some cases and not to dwell on them Mm -hmm. for the future because, you know, you guys are trying to build something or, you know, you have employees relying on you for the kind of their livelihoods and stuff like that. So there's a lot of other things that, you know, uh, I feel like uh, entrepreneurs have uh, surrounding them in terms of their decision making. And the framework aspect, I feel like is very important because it allows you kind of structure saying, you know, check, check, check. I've made that kind of uh, understanding around the decision I'm probably making. But when it comes times to maybe say the poor decisions, it can also kind of impact our mental health. And so one of the things I'd love to understand is, you know, uh, as an entrepreneur, it's usually a lonely kind of journey. Um, and we've heard that many times. But how, how did you go about kind of making sure that you had a healthy kind of mental health aspect um, around entrepreneurship when you're building out uh, your companies and uh, maybe what kind of advice you could give to entrepreneurs and making sure that there's a balance there uh, and making sure that you're happy in terms of what you're doing and uh, sustained uh, in terms of what you can do. Okay, I have to hit it two ways. Number one is if you were to go back and say, let's talk about when we were building wind and we were in the height of battle, I was probably the worst example of that. We were drinking too much. We were um, not exercising enough, not sleeping well, stressed continuously, not not socializing with people that could help us and be advise us well. And the list would go on and on. We were probably probably the exact opposite of what you want to do on conventional wisdom. So let's pretend that that happened, and then I learned from that, and I started to really take a look at it in a more structured way, which I have. Here's what I would say to you. I break the concept of, of well-being, let's call it, and again, back a little bit to resilience, into three categories. One is physical, two is social, and three is psychological. Okay, physical is what you ex- exercise, nutrition, sleep, all of that kind of stuff. And I can I, I, I tell you the, the importance of that within reason. I'm not saying go monk, right? We're not going into a seminary and becoming a monk right? But balancing that in a smart way and, ra- and don't, not fueling it all with booze and, and so on and so forth is, uh, is, is a smart and a learning on my side. Social, peer mentors, other entrepreneurs, if you're an entrepreneur, other employees that are at same levels to you in other organizations, other people that you can talk to with shared experience or non-shared experience. Okay. And the list would go on and on about creating also a non-work social environment and your friend group and your your, all of that kind of thing bringing that into your life in the smartest way possible that is actually my superpower that's what got me through it the most okay i tell stories about tony simon and i having this triumvirate for months and months on end of three and six hours a day of work when we were looking to sell wind and when this happened when that happened that was the thing that got me through was that part of it and then psychological is the thing I've come to more recently. This is talking about mindfulness, okay? This is talking about, you know, the, the tropes of if it's not working, just work harder. If it's this, do this. If it's this, do this. The, the, generally what I found, the mindfulness and the psychological side are do the opposite of that. Slow it down every once in a while, okay? Actually take a step back 
and reflect on the situation that you're in rather than battling the fire and then just the next one and the next one and the next one. Pull yourself out consciously in periods and look a little more strategically and so on. And I think having those three pillars working in the most logical and effective way, feeding each other smartly. And as I've gotten older and all of those have gotten more, more systematized and a little better, it's really helped me a lot. So that's the kind of the way I would advise a, a younger entrepreneur, even a, a high charging kind of employee type. And look, I will add one other thing. This pandemic has, uh, exposed a lot of things. We know this, right? It's almost a, again, it's almost a cliche around mental health and wellness and so on. We could go in a lot of directions. The first direction I would go is I think Canada has mismanaged this very poorly in a lot of different ways as, as we've taken this single variable approach to uh, cases, hospitalizations, ICU, and ultimately death. We have not thought about the multivariable problem here. If we would have thought about the multivariable problem, which I think we're starting to be forced to, we will have a far better mental health and wellness for the society, the, the society that is relatively un- unimpacted by the virus. So I'll stop there because again, lengthy, lots of ways to go, but always, always pull it back to physical, social, psychological, keep that in the back of your brain. When one, when something's going wrong, remember those three and figure out the one that you want to focus on and just keep pressing on that. I love that. I love, I love the, the, the focus approach to kind of the, all the pillars that you're kind of balancing with the the idea of a framework that's going to help you get through that process step by step. Um, and that kind of brings me to the next topic that I wanted to touch on of MindFrame Connect, right? Um, the online platform designed to provide uh, kind of practical learnings and advice to entrepreneurs and mentors. And we can kind of see through this conversation, a lot of the learnings that you've kind of gathered and put together because it's coming out in a lot of your explanations. And so with MindFrame Connect, can you kind of talk to us about that and how this program, this program works? Um, what are the highlights that you can share from us uh, with your first couple cohorts and just kind of walk us through the process of how you got to this? Yeah, it's a great question. So, and I thank you for giving us a little airtime on this. It's a super important initiative. And quite frankly, one of these things you do as you get older and you find spots, almost like a startup where you think there's a bit of a, a problem not being solved and you put some resources. Here's how, here's how it goes. I was mentoring a creative destruction lab Atlantic in 2018. First time I'd done mass group mentorship. So many mentors and you know, some number of companies. I go into this room at Dalhousie. There are business luminaries from the East Coast, left, right, and center. There were four billionaires in the room, family names you would know. I was intimidated and I had been mentoring for a long time. And I realized coming out of that when I watched everyone in the room and how they approach things that I've been doing a ton wrong. Why had I been doing a ton wrong? No one teaches people how to be mentors. It's tribal. You learn by doing and you learn by making mistakes. That inspired me to go on a little bit of a journey to try to up my game at mentorship. When the pandemic hit, I took the summer of 2020 when we all figured out video and I interviewed 150 people with a research assistant and we wrote a manuscript on the craft of mentorship and menteeship. Importantly, you have to do both sides. Mentees are not taught at all how to be a good mentee. So we took both sides of the coin. That process resulted in me talking to a gentleman by the name of Jeff, Jeff Larson, who, were, who runs CDL Atlantic and, Dell, and Innovation at Dell. He came back and said, let's take this thing up a level. Rather than just writing a static manuscript, let's turn this into a dynamic program. And so that was the beginning of what we now call MindFrame Connect. And it breaks down into this whole mentor side. So upskilling mentorship in the ecosystem, which I'll talk to in a second. And at the same time, for about a third of this call today, being a good indicator of that, 
we saw the deficiency in resilience. And so we added a stream on building the skills for entrepreneurial resilience. And that framework that I talked about, physical, social, psychological, is an example of some of the learnings on that other stream. And so what we've done with it is we have these two streams, mentorship and resilience, and we've created one hour synchronous workshops where, you know, Founder Institute, Techstars, Creative Destruction Lab, the Generation Hustle audience, we could do one for, you know, we could go any direction we want. And we do one on being a better mentor, one on being a better mentee. We're just building one on equity, diversity, inclusion for mentors. Uh, And then we have a resilience workshop. So we have these synchronous workshops and we're building all of this stuff in behind it that is asynchronous, be it a document, be it a podcast, be it a video, be it whatever, that take the concepts we introduce in the workshop and bring them up on steroids. Okay. And what I will tell you is that, yes, it's focused on entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, I believe that done right, hopefully we'll knock this thing out of the park properly we could actually have a more broad impact. Because if you look at mentorship as an example, you know, there's all these leadership fads. I want to be a servant leader. I want to be this leader. I want to be that leader. The act of being a good mentor actually implies a good human and a good leader. And so these kinds of things I think are very timeless and are going to be very helpful in both the ecosystem and beyond. So appreciate you giving me a few minutes to talk about it. That is the initiative, mindframeconnect.com. Encourage people to visit. And, you know, I'm looking continuously for places where we can put these workshops on and get the message out to upskill ourselves in these areas, which I think just drives a better ecosystem. Absolutely. And we definitely wanted to get that out there just to understand what the program is doing and how we can get involved with that if possible. Um, But just one last note on that, um, because you did mention um, just building up entrepreneurs and their awareness of things. What are some popular resources that maybe you can kind of highlight that entrepreneurs should be aware of when it comes to building their business or managing um, any of these topics that we've kind of discussed today? There are millions. Um, uh, You know, one tries to narrow to what frameworks make the most sense to get you rolling and so on. I mean, I think so. I wrote in that mentor book, we wrote a chapter called Mentoring Founders. And in that chapter, it's all frameworks. Okay, and there are probably highlighted in the bibliography 100 to 200. I don't want to overplay it, but what I will say is an example of resilience. There's a book called Scale Your Everest, written by a guy named Eric Severinghaus, who was an entrepreneur and a mountain climber. And he basically compared the entrepreneurial journey with his journey of climbing Everest. And in there, there's some implicit frameworks around uh, being a resilient entrepreneur. So I'll pick that as one example. Another example in a different category. Uh, team effectiveness. Okay. There's a great book called the five dysfunctions of a team. And if you want to, you guys may have heard of it. Laconi is, or Laconi, however you pronounce the, the person's name, great articulation of how to look at the rights and the wrongs of dealing with teams. You know, John Doerr wrote a book called measure what matters. And that talks about using OKRs in your business. Um, lean, lean startup. You will all know that, right? Very popular. And again, I don't, we could go forever on this, we are hoping on Mindframe Connect to soon have some bibliographies that will steer people to many, many frameworks across many, many different topics. Right. That was great. One thing we like to do to kind of close out our, our podcast episodes with our guests is always to do a quick lightning round. So we just have a quick couple of questions here and you can uh, just say the first thing that comes to mind. First off, and you alluded to this earlier, um, could you tell us your favorite book uh, of all time? Yes, that you sir. Would- so and it's topical, right? It changes over time with people. 
I, my current go-to right now is anti-fragile things that gain from disorder by a gentleman with, with the last name of Taleb, T-A-L-E-B. I could talk about this for days, but I apply it in the context of the pandemic. Okay. And again, just to remind people, anti-fragility means that you look at stressors and you grow stronger from them when you're, when they hit you. In the case of resilience, you, you, you build to the same level. In the case of anti-fragility, you build back stronger. Okay. Now, again, without getting too political here, I already alluded to my views that we have, we've viewed the pandemic in this country in a very specific way that I don't, that I think have been a bit of a disservice when you look at the last couple of years. And examples would be this acute focus on that one metric that really, if you then age cohort, it really impacts a certain demographic at the expense of the youth, at the expense of students, at the expense of economics. You know, fiscally, we're coming out probably one of the worst of this in terms of our spend and so on. And what I say to people is, I'm not trying to get political and I'm not trying to pick a right, a left or a center. What I am saying is that let's approach things with an open mind. Let's truly look at the data. Let's look at country, other countries and their models that have been reasonably successful. Let's learn from it and let's do it better as we move forward. I'll give you one stat that blows me away. If a student drops out of high school and doesn't graduate, their life expectancy is five years lower than someone who graduates high school. It blew blew me away. I can guess why, right? Lots of factors there. Um, Are we creating conditions the way we're handling these lockdowns that might result in a higher dropout rate in high school? I think we are. And so we've decided implicitly to reduce certain people's lifestyles, uh, sorry, uh, lifespans at the expense of the other side. And what I say to people is, is that at least understand the trades that we're making as a society and recognize that there are no, you know, binary trades. And if we accept risk across a continuum and understand that, you know, you look at a comment on social media about opening schools and someone comes in, children are dying of COVID. Well, that's actually not an accurate statement. And we want to be more nuanced and thoughtful as a side. And that is the kind of uh, approach that will create anti-fragility. So, and that can be applied to business, that can be applied to society, to countries, to politics, to a hundred other areas. Highly encourage people to read it. And this reflects back to your viewpoint on frameworks and how you approach uh, decision-making. So we love that. Definitely we'll have to check out that book here. Please. Second question here. If you can have dinner with one person, dead or alive, at any point in history, who would that be? Yeah, so I've had this a few times. Um, dead for sure, because I feel like anyone alive, there's actually almost a way to get to them. It's yeah. it's, it's it's hard to get to a few, don't get me wrong, but you can get close enough. Um, in terms of past, I look for, I want to get a big historical figure that has been built up. And, you know, that saying history is written by the victors, that's probably been mis articulated now is over the passage of time. And I want to actually talk to them about reality and what happened. And so that can go in a lot of different directions because you want to pin me to one. I won't use the last one that I, uh, that I picked. The last one I picked was Jesus Christ, which is not, uh, which is obvious, right? What the hell really happened there? But let's go with Julius Caesar have a little chat about him. So those kinds of figures are the ones that I want to talk to. 
For sure. I love it. You're getting super meta with us and we can make that a whole other podcast on its own. <laughs> love it. Uh, Staying in the tech space here or kind of any industry, really, is there any new innovations or any new industries or emerging industries right now that are exciting you? Yeah, so I've got to go with a pretty uh, middle of the fairway one, and that's clean tech. Okay, and here's what I'll say about clean tech is that, you know, the Bank of Canada came out last week with some kind of projection about how GDP is going to hit, be hit in the Canadian economy as we get moved to a clean economy. And it's all bad news, right? Negative, negative, negative they did not include innovation breakthroughs in that calculation. There's no way we sit here static from an innovation standpoint as it relates to the climate economy. There is more money flowing into breakthrough opportunities in all aspects of that world than I've ever seen. It is also the most definably large addressable market opportunity I've ever seen in my life. Okay, so it's very clear that governments and society are about to spend like we've never seen on these kinds of things. So you've ticked, uh, you know, we have a five criteria for investing in startups. One of them is size of addressable market. Tick on that one. And then you just go down and you look at innovation, building on innovation, the teams and the intellectual property being applied to what is an existential risk long term, even though we can't digest that well as a human and so on. And I personally believe, and I think we're already seeing the, the shoots of this, that there will be some breakthroughs that will radically change the, the, the way we deal with carbon in the next decade that will change entirely the equation of how the earth heats. And I want to be part of that on all levels. So I believe that is the no-brainer opportunity of the next two decades. Love it. Love it. And last but not least, the question that tends to put everyone on edge on our podcast. Um, do you have a preference on pineapples on pizza? I love pineapple on pizza. In fact, not only do I love it, I'd take extra pineapple. I am a pineapple guy. Bring it on triple. That is hilarious. I'll That's the first time we've heard that. I, uh, a buddy of mine at, uh, used to work with at Global Life, still a good friend. He's like, he's from Trinidad. And that boy loves pineapple on everything. And he got me drinking Malibu rum and pineapple juice and like, just bring more pineapple. I think pineapple is good for the world. This is amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's cringing so hard. I love yeah, it. I'm not, uh, I'm not a pineapple guy myself. So that's what <laughs> I say. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's an outstanding question, fellas. I love it. Awesome. Thank you, awesome. Bryce. This has been so incredible. I'm going to have to listen to this back like three or four times just to digest everything. Uh, so we appreciate your time. Is there any last words that you'd like to say where we can find you, where we can connect with you? Anything else here? Yeah, I'll say two things. So you can get me on LinkedIn. The last name is always the, the difficult one. Um, Seth Chuck, I, you guys are probably posting that somehow. Uh, hit me and just remind me of how you heard about it. And it gives me a little context, which is helpful. Um, the second thing I'll say is that, look, I love that you guys are doing this. I like the, the demographic that you're communicating to. You're giving me an opportunity to communicate. What I'll leave people with is that in spite of what seems to sometimes be negativity everywhere we turn right now, this existential risk, this pandemic, this mental health, and so on, in all reality, you know, Warren Buffett, in one of his annual meetings, did a great thing where he was asked about how, um, you know, all the problems in the world. And he went back to when he bought his first stock. And Pearl Harbor happened within a few days. Mm. Okay. That's how old the man is. Um, and so he pulled out the headlines from the paper of the six days or something of when he bought a stock. And it was like the worst headline, the worst, the worst, the worst. And what I'll say to people is that it always feels 
like you're kind of in the worst in the scenario that you're in and when kind of bad things happen in crisis, I encourage everyone to take that minute, take that step back, take a little bit of a shot at some mindfulness, and you will actually always find we're in a better time. You're, the latest time is always the best time. And that there is such an unlimited opportunity set ahead. Get past the negativity, start your business, create what you create, go for it, enjoy it, and be positive. That would be the message I would leave people with. That's awesome, man. I love it. 